This is Takeaway Only, a podcast about the hospitality industry in crisis. I'm Howie Kahn, and these are the stories of the people who take care of you. Today's guest is Christopher Costo of the restaurant at Meadowood and of the Charter Oak in Napa Valley and of Insu in Shenzhen, China. Hear what it means to Christopher to run restaurants on two continents, what he's learned about his own character, and how to put your money where your mouth is. Plus, a new CSA program, an idea about jelly beans, and a meditation on China's wet markets. We're back tomorrow with an all-new guest. Please hit subscribe so you don't miss it. Stay tuned now for Christopher. You guys uh, reopened for takeaway at the Charter Oak last week. What are you serving? How's it going? Community happy? You happy? Good to be cooking again for people? Yeah, we you know we opened with a pretty limited uh, menu. Um, we we were very conservative with our approach to all this, and we you know we're the we're the last restaurants to actually do takeout. I mean, granted, we are at a pretty small uh, a small uh, community. I think there's like twenty five hundred full time residents in this town, so. There's not a whole lot of money to be made, but we were very cautious when all this hit to more or less shut it all down, send everyone home, and we only, again, recently sort of poked our heads up again. So we started last week, limited menu, but seven days a week, and the numbers have been really good, actually. Um, I mean, more or less, it's a very big restaurant that is really contingent to success. It's contingent upon covers and events, and this is a massive space. And now we're operating a very small, uh, fast, casual restaurant. <laughs> it's like it's just it's just bizarre. How massive is it for people who have never been in? Uh, the dining room. You have like ten thousand plus square feet of dining space, plus downstairs, plus terraces. I mean, it, it is it is a beautiful, beautiful uh, space. You know, the energy levels really. It's really. Um, incumbent that there is a lot of people in the space that's sort of that's sort of the vibe um so uh to have it more or less quiet but yet you know serving food curbside is a bit of an odd thing how did you determine what the menu would be you know it was really like what um what are the greatest hits you know everybody wants the charter oak burger which i mean which is great it's a great burger but that's for some reason what everybody like that's what everybody buys that's what everybody wants I just want to cover our bases. You know, we're not doing lunch and dinner. We're doing sort of a condensed three to seven service. Um, so we want a little bit of lunchy stuff, a little bit of dinner stuff. Uh, and this, again, it's been going really well. The food's been looking great. The team here is doing a great job and everyone's like super, super happy. So we're happy. I, I, Napa's so dependent on, on tourists. There's only so many people who actually live in, in the community. So how can you survive just feeding the community? I don't, I don't think we can. I mean, long-term we can't. Um, we have, you know, other, other restaurants, you know, uh, locally have been doing delivery up and down the valley. I mean, you're talking 30 miles, you know, each way. People are doing whatever they can. But long term, these restaurants, it's a tourist economy. Um, and the off season, you know, the shoulder months, the January, February, March, which is locals only, you can not lose money. And that's more or less our goal. We try to break even during that time. But once, but you can't, you can't operate a restaurant like that all the time. So, I think the the good thing is is once you know the shelter places are lifted in the Bay Area, everyone's going to come to the Valley because we've had very few confirmed cases. Um, so there will be business to be had. The challenge is is that you have people coming from all over to the Valley, and who knows what they're going to bring with them. So uh, you know, I, I think that Napa has been a little more um, loose with their restrictions uh, than other counties, frankly, in the Bay Area. 
I think the reason is you have a lot of wealth there and maybe people who, who are, have their hands closers and love the levers of power, I think, um, myself not included in that group. Um, and, uh, but I think it doesn't really matter. Uh, Napa may be open for business, but if the other counties aren't, then it really doesn't I want to go back in time a little bit. You're one of the few chefs I know who uh, operates a restaurant in China that you had been spending a lot of time at over the course of the last year. It's a newer restaurant. It's called Insu. It's in uh, Shenzhen. And, uh, you know, you had to manage shutting that down long before you had to, to shut down Meadowood. So can you take me through what was happening when you first started getting a grasp on what was going on with COVID in China and, and the actions you had to take at, at that restaurant? Yeah, and it, was, it was almost a little easier in the, in the sense that uh, the, it was during Chinese New Year, so the restaurant was not operational, and the team was, was frankly, most of them were not in Shenzhen at all. So the closure of it was pretty easy. Um, and the Chinese government, being slightly more autocratic uh, than ours, uh, handled it in a very, I mean, one, one might say heavy-handed, one might say logical and effective manner. But it was pretty, everything was very clear. There wasn't the you know, there wasn't the there wasn't the gray areas, and there wasn't sort of different rules depending on your city. It was a pretty it was pretty clearly defined what could and could not happen. So when it came time to get back to business, the challenge was that the team was scattered to the four winds. Getting them back into Shenzhen, having everybody quarantined, that whole process was very challenging. But I was on, I mean, I was dealing with China to all day today at the restaurant. And it's busier now than it ever was, and it's really looking great. Now, does that mean then the U.S. is going to happen in the same fashion? I'm not sure. I mean, I think that's a, that's a country and a culture that has dealt with these pandemics uh, with far greater regularity as of late than we have, be it H1N1 and things like that. So they're used to wearing masks and all those things that I think for us are really, frankly, off-putting. You know? So the team, you know, the service team of the dining room at Ensu is still all on masks. The whole team is in masks all the time. And business is still fine. And, 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 and people are dealing with the restrictions. We'll see how we'll see if it's uh, if the experience in the U.S. mirrors that. I was watching um, a video clip the other day um, that was a public service thing for kids who were going back to school in, in China. Saw that. And uh, yeah, I mean, the kid shows up at school, uh, a sanitation worker, essentially, who may be a teacher, may not, greets them, sprays down their shoes. They go through another, you know, thing that kind of looks like a steamer and getting like kind of vaporized all over. They stick their hands in several different devices. That and look then there's like the robot thing. Toy robots, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, the kid put his hands in the robot and, and ostensibly the, the hands were clean afterwards. I'm, I, I don't think you have a toy robot outside of in, in Sue. It's, it's a, you know, it's a beautiful fine dining restaurant, but what are you doing for diners? How do you get in? I don't know that they're doing temperature checks right now. Um, I think that that may have passed. I mean, the big metric in China was when the clubs reopened, which was like two weeks ago. I only know this guy, you know, we're, we're on, I'm on WeChat conversations with the team there and obviously you start getting all these drunk and rambling WeChat messages in the wee hours of the morning, their time. And it turns out that the clubs were allowed to reopen. So that's a big deal in China because obviously they feel like they're, they have it pretty well under control. Now, the challenge for me is they are shutting the country down to outside visitors, meaning I can't even get into China. And even if I could, I can't get back because there's a travel ban on China. So, so I, I, I don't know when I'm going to be able to get there. We have some pretty big name guest chef uh, events that we are going to hopefully announce sometime soon for the fall. So hopefully everything will be travel will at least be uh, possible then. Um, but uh, I'm very, I am very um, pleased to see 
where the how, how well business is doing right now. It's pretty. It's pretty amazing. I hope you're as, as many of your guest chefs as possible are are not American because I have a feeling Americans are going to be the last people allowed back into China. I, that, that's a, that's an even bigger consideration. I think that the tone and tenor of the, the relationship between the U.S. and China is going to get so much worse if that was even possible. That I'm I'm worried about what the overall repercussions of that are going to be. I think China's going to lose a lot of Ameri- a lot of manufacturing. I think that there's going to be real challenges getting in and out of China. I know when you opened in Sioux, one of the things you were concerned about was getting that local audience, getting people from Shenzhen to come in, people who aren't business travelers or in town for some quick meeting or in Hong Kong and want to take the 45-minute train ride over. It, it sounds like you are getting the locals. We are because that's really all we have now. I mean, in the time we were open, in it, prior to the pandemic, we had the massive unrest in Hong Kong. So, so there hasn't been a lot of international travel coming to Shenzhen. There will be again. I mean, that 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 city is sort of the future of the country. I think in a lot of ways. So that, but we haven't really been able to tap that Michelin E fifty best sort of audience. So we we have definitely pivoted a little bit, made sure that we're focusing in the immediate term on getting Shenzhen people in the, in the space. Luckily, there's a lot of youth and a lot of wealth in the city. Um, you know, there's a bit of a learning curve and a bit of a translation issue in terms of what the intent of the food is and stuff. But we've done a pretty good job, and Miles, my chef there, has just done. The food is just spot on. It's really, really fun and really exceptional. So I think I think it feels like we're going to win. And it, it was a little bit in doubt for a while. <laughs> has, has COVID changed any of the sourcing there? How has it affected farms? Um, it has a little bit. Again, the, 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 there's always been a premium on imported products there, and even more so now, which is run counter to what our intentions are there. Our intentions are really to use Chinese products. Uh, there's always been a value proposition challenge with our guests where they, they don't see the value in something that's local as much as they see the value of something that's imported. So we've had to bend on that a little bit. We are in the process of building our own farm, which I think from a messaging communications perspective, explaining to the guests, I think will have a little more resonance than just something great we found in the markets. Uh, a bigger question is really what happens to those wet markets. You know, obviously, the assumption is that that's where this all began, unless you believe it began on some nefarious island uh, in, or, or lab of some kind. I don't know. I mean, so I, I think that that's a big issue because we, you know, we would go, and every time we go, we go to Dongmei, we go to these the big wet market in Shenzhen. It's one of the most amazing things you have ever seen. And it would be a real shame if that's if that was to was to. Yeah, I mean, these places are really culturally significant and, the you know, the source of employment for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people across the country. They could probably do a better job of managing some of it. You know, the alligators and the crates and the large newts running around and stuff. They could probably, <laughs> they could probably corral, corral it a little bit. I think there's always opportunities for public health improvements in, in almost any scenario anywhere in, in the world. Um, well, I mean, we're learning, we're learning that now dearly. Um, I know at restaurant at, at Meadowood, somehow your your team, who's you know exceptionally high functioning and very creative, has been testing recipes for new possible menus. Not that you necessarily know what season you're going to open back up in, and even know what you're going to be able to cook. But how have you guys really been able to stay creative? What's showing up on the plate? How are you tasting? How are you getting together? What's the deal? Um, it's funny when we wrote out the initial R and D list, there was like a spring. Part so that is that has since been been moved aside. I, I've been joking that the, the only good thing to come of this is I don't have to worry about what to cook, what to do with the asparagus for the two weeks that it's good. It's always like the, like this big stress, this big stress point. Um, but we do weekly tastings. Uh, Jacqueline, who's the chef de cuisine there, who's just a young 
spark plug, talented, super talented lady. Uh, she's been putting together the tastings and we've just been working through it. I mean, there's a certain luxury in that respect to have all the time in the world without operations of the restaurant interfering to really focus on ideation and enable you really to, to have some of the bigger ideas, bigger projects, the sort of dishes that we call forever dishes, that, that idea that you know you can bring back again. Um, so there's a lot of those happening. And I, I, I've been really, really happy with the direction of the food there for the past year. It's becoming very specific. And I think really, it's really, I think it's, it's saying something of consequence. It's being really well executed. So I'm really looking forward to getting that team back. Cause that we I've, I've run that restaurant for 11 years. I, we've never had a team as good as the one we have now. It's really an exceptional group of people. Um, so all of whom are really itching to get back in the saddle. These are, these are sort of three-star kind of people. I don't mean that in a, in a, in a qualitative sense, but just <laughs> you know, stylistically, these are like, these are type A personalities uh, and they are chomping at the bit. Yeah. I mean, I was in there for a meal last fall and it, it felt like that. It was one of those, holy shit, something's happening, very special kind of meals. Um, are there any things that are, you know, being developed right now that, you know, are, you know, it's not going to go on the menu, but it's going to kind of kill you that it's not going to go on the menu right now? We've been at, uh, um, I wish I had my notes on me. I have like the world's worst memory. There was, there was an idea that, that was, that was put forth that we were going to do, which we could still do. I just haven't gotten it, which is like, like, you know, jelly beans, jelly beans are delicious. And we have all these beautiful beans that we grow to like do a last bite, like a sweet little thing. It's like jellied beans of some kind. So sort of treating the beans themselves like you would like a confiture of chestnut or something where you're cooking it over and over again in different syrups to more or less completely infiltrate and change the obviously the makeup and texture of the bean. So making like savory or maybe sweet sort of jelly beans, that was something we've been working on. And I hope we were open by summer because we're, we're initially really excited, but also sort of in the sweet vein is like doing a box of what looks like elegant chocolates, you know, with all the pomp and circumstance. But it's really just like, 12 different kinds of berries that we grow all the different preparations like hyper simple and that's the sort of like the statement we're making that that there's there's no more value in a in a overwrought chocolate than there is in a beautifully grown berry so hopefully we can get this place open to to, to do that dish i mean i feel like that's a way that maybe china has influenced your cuisine where the you know a straightforward ingredient it can be very valuable to a menu you know, the, 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 the cross pollination between the restaurants, really all three of them right now, is really, it's really the most enjoyable part of all this because the restaurants really are borrowing from each other. Um, you know, as much restaurant Meadowood from Ensu as Ensu from restaurant Meadowood. I mean, the DNA of Ensu is 1,000% the restaurant Meadowood, you know, implementing, utilizing the, the Cantonese sensibilities, Cantonese products and techniques. But it's really, I look at that food and I tell the chef how happy I am because it literally looks like, the restaurant Medwood went to Southern China and not in a forced cheesy, Hey, look at us. We're cooking Chinese food sort of way, but hopefully in a very reverential and very humble way. So I'm, I, I couldn't be happier. And the, and the opposite is, is as well true with these chefs in St. Helena, California, borrowing subtly these, these, these thousands of year old techniques from a little restaurant in Shenzhen. It's really, that to me is the most fun part of this whole thing. That's really cool. How long was the restaurant shut down for in Shenzhen? Um, two and a half months, I think. And how does that work in China with with employment, unemployment, furlough, layoffs? My partner there, who was an exceptional young man, paid everyone throughout. And that was really important for him. Uh, everyone got paid. That's Ricky Lee. That's Ricky Lee. He's a great dude. 
He actually just texted me, and it's three o'clock in the morning there. So I just I told him to, to go to bed. So I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> but again, this goes back to the fact the clubs are open, right? Um, yeah. So he's a, he's great, and um, everyone came back. I mean, it, it's really in short time we've been able to build a culture there uh, that's a really powerful one. And I can't. I just can't wait to get back. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I, I can't wait to get back. Might have to swim. What about your What about your teams at, at Meadowood and, and Charter Oak? Is is that a layoff furlough situation? Have people stayed we, on? Uh, Did you reduce? This is a. Bro- I mean, I, I I think we handled this as well as could be handled, and I, I mean this is a bit of a broader conversation, but I'm I I, I might regret saying this, but I I don't understand chefs of great means and restaurant groups of great means who crowdfunded to take care of their staff. Um, we subsidized every employee of both restaurants, those who didn't have enough vacation pay, up to a certain dollar amount to ensure that they were comfortable and able to survive throughout this thing, in addition to the unemployment they were going to get. And everyone is okay, and everyone will be back when the time comes. I and mean, we won't be able to bring everyone back when, at the immediate, but hopefully in time when the business levels build, we will. That was very, very important. So, and I sort of look at this in terms of concentric circles of responsibility. My first responsibility, what drove our decision to shut these restaurants down, no questions asked, was concern for my family, wherein I didn't want to go to the restaurants every day, expose myself to all sorts of different people, and go home to my wife and kids. That did not, I don't care what the, 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 the financial loss was going to be, that just it didn't make sense to me. And then the next layer of that concentric circle is our, is our, is our teams, which frankly, not, not, to, not, to sound, not to sound pat, but these are our families as well. We spend as much time with them as we do anybody else. And if we did not take care of them, then everything we've been saying for the past decade is absolute bullshit. So that level, that, that concentric circle was, was very, very, very important. Everyone was properly taken care of. It was properly communicated to. But everyone was able to maintain their health care. At Meadowood, we did it through uh, a COBRA, um, COBRA thing. At Churro, we did it. We kept everyone on there. On there. We, we did a more of a furlough and kept everyone on there on their health care. Um, that was really important. And then next consideration, once those things are done, the next, the third consideration is, is obviously the financial well-being and our partners and the, 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 the health of the restaurants. And that's more or less what we're dealing with now. But the third thing doesn't mean anything if the first two aren't taken care of. I, and anybody who argues otherwise, I have a, I take a bit of issue. I mean, I've, I've been watching all the different ways people have taken care of their teams or in air quotes, taken care of their teams. And I am very curious who the people are uh, who actually put their money where their, their mouth is. It's a really interesting thing. And, and I think there should be some transparency and some reporting about that that will happen. For you, does that mean dipping into your own account? Is it a Meadowood account? Is it because you have some investors who have some money? Like, What's the formula for the future so people who own restaurants can take care of their people? Where does the money come from? Yeah, I mean, all the key people took significant. I mean, at Cherry Oak, I don't, I don't have a salary, so I just don't. I'm just not making any money. Um, so whatever dollars we paid out was cash we had on hand, and we're going to have to do our best one way or another to earn that money back. You know, I went back and rebudgeted the restaurant, and you take say, listen, we're going to have to our food costs are going to have to run a little bit lower. Everything we're going to have to recalibrate this to pay for what we did for our team, and that's I think the proper way to do it. As it relates to Meadowood. Um, you know, I worked with my partners over there, and again, it you know, it's a conversation of of what what is the ethical proper thing to do. So we did furlough those people. We really laid those people off only because 
in laying them off, that was the best way to A, ensure they could get the COBRA, B, they could get all their PTO and their sick pay, and we subsidized them. Originally, and this is, you know, this was a week-long process of, of more HR language than I ever want to have to deal with again. Um, but that's more or less how we did it. So I took a pay cut at Meadow with a significant one, and I just have accepted the fact that I'm not going to make any money at Charter Oak. But we'll all survive this together, and, and we'll figure it out. I mean, I think part of the way through this is the realization that we're all going to make less money, but maybe we can all make less money while we still have jobs. Less money is better than no money. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I'm at, you know, the, the difference, you know, char- character is what, what is it? Reputation is what people think you are and character is what you are. I think to your earlier point about there being some transparency with the stuff, I, it was a very, I, there's very few stress tests of your character. And I feel like this was one of them. And I feel proud about how we handled it. Um, do we make mistakes? Yeah. Like, you know, it was, you, you, it's just like, you know, figuring things out in a, in a triage hospital, you know, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, but in the end, I feel proud about how we took care of our teams. I'm proud of our partners for supporting those decisions. And I'm proud of our team for being understanding and appreciative of the situation we were all in. In terms of the subsidies that you guys were able to give out, is it uh, on a case-by-case basis or same amount to everybody? Um, it was, let's see, for Meadowood, it, it was really depending on how much, how much vacation time they had because we wanted to get everyone to a certain threshold. At Meadowood, we'd just come off our closure, so everyone had exhausted, this, this is what started this off, everyone had exhausted all their vacation pay for the most part. So we had to subsidize those people a lot. Those who hadn't gone on break for whatever reason got subsidized less, but the end goal was that everyone more or less walked away with the same money. And at Meadowood, it was, it was the only division when really was between management, which, which is a very small number of managers here, and, and line staff. Um, but that, the, the difference is, frankly, pretty nominal. Tell me about the CSA you've started. Did you ever think you were going to start a CSA? We actually, yeah. We actually wanted to for a long time. Zach, my farmer, who's awesome, is a measure 12 times and cut once kind of guy, whereas I'm just like, put some vegetables in the fucking box and let's sell them. So this forced us to... <laughs> to to just get the program going. Uh, we're doing sort of a bi-weekly thing now. We're starting a six-month subscription uh, as of June 1. And, you know, everyone's prognosticating what the future is. Obviously, retail in some fashion or a more robust retail program at all restaurants is, is in the short and medium term, is going to be important. So this certainly does that. And it helps us sell um, other – we're building out a larger program. We have a massive larger food preservation. It's very big important part of what we do at all the restaurants. So through the CSA, we're able to supplement with some larger items to, to generate some revenue. So, I mean, none of this stuff is, is making us win, but it's hopefully helping us not lose. What's in the box? What are some of those larger items? Um, man, you know, Charlie, who I wish was here, he makes any number of fish sauces and uh, garams and, and, uh, and uh, misos and, you know, um, hot sauces and uh, dry uh, preserved fruit from last year. Um, we'll do different like dips and vinaigrettes and things. Um, eventually, and this is sort of what we're working on now, is we really want to build that program out to maybe make it more of a national like a mail order thing. Um, it's pretty specific stuff. So I don't I mean, it's not going to be on the shelves of Trader Joe's or anything, but I think someone like you, if we could sell jars of, you know, we treat green, we do green, olive, green almonds treated like green olives. Like if we could sell jars of that. I mean, I, I think stuff like that is pretty, it's pretty interesting. You totally could. I mean, you're talking to a guy who's like hoarding jars of jam from Squirrel <laughs> on his desk. 
Um, just eating it with a spoon. Pretty much. I'm like yeah. 50% water, 50% squirrel jam at, at, this, <laughs> at this point in my life. Um, is there, there's a uh, giving component to the boxes too, a, a charity component? We are not through that directly, but we are now working with the Boys and Girls Club uh, of St. Helena and Calistoga. So uh, we, we are, it actually starts Thursday. We've been doing this sort of a bit by bit as the organizations themselves sort of got their, their stuff together. Um, in that, and these, the Boys and Girls Club sort of had a built in awareness of who was in need in these times, most of which are uh, people who, single mothers who worked in the restaurant industry. These are kids who would otherwise have been, whose food would have been subsidized at school. So they, they sort of have this network already of people in need. So there's a few restaurants around here, ourselves being one of them, who are cooking um, for the Boys and Girls Club who are then in turn distributing. So that's been, that's been really interesting. So you're becoming a, a meal delivery system for people in need in this time. That's good. Um, you guys have a big Christmas program every year where 12 chefs from all over the world visit and cook in this kind of beautiful marathon that happens over over two weeks. Um, it's an amazing thing to watch. Have you thought about how on earth that's going to happen this year? The reality is it's not. I mean, it's just, I, I can't invite chefs now for December. Our financial, um, our brand partners who really help underwrite it, one of which is an airline, another which is a credit card company, financial services company. They, no one has the budgets. No one's going to do it. It just, I, I think we're just, we're just not going to do it. Sure. Now I want to do some, some more abbreviated version in December of a few chefs, uh, obviously with some charitable component. Cause we, we, that event gives a lot of money to St. Helena preschool for all, which is sort of our charity of choice, which is obviously hyper local. I think we'll probably pull something off and, and make sure that that organization gets some money and maybe some additional organizations get some money related to the issues that this whole thing has created. But 12 days for only the second time is not, is not going to happen. Sure. I mean, in a way you could do it over zoom and democratize it a little bit more. People who could never ever see it might be able to get to it, which could be cool. And there could be a, I was watching, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Instagram last night and she was doing a donation-a-thon live and you just press that little button in the corner and like donate, donate, donate. So I don't know. There's there's a move to be made here. I've never been there for it. I would like to see it selfishly. Well, I mean, if you can't, I mean, I don't know. It's pretty tactile. Like if you can't eat it and smell it, I don't know. Something might be lost in translation. Maybe there's a learning component though, and maybe the foods could be a little bit more surprising and different, and not necessarily home cookable. But um, I don't know. Even if it's, even if it's just each chef explaining the dish, you know, yeah, doing doing the dinners as per normal, and just having that sort of additional component. Honestly, I would watch it if twelve of you made sandwiches, <laughs> or a tw- twelve the twelve omelets of Christmas. It's such a fun, crazy event. I mean, it's it's a shame. It's a shame. I haven't told my staff that we're not doing it, but. Maybe they're going to watch this. Yeah, they can learn on the podcast. Breaking now. Oh, boy. We don't, we don't want to break any hearts here. There's enough. There's enough of that. Um, our show is called Takeaway Only. Christopher, what's your big takeaway from being a, a chef, being a dad, being a business operator, being in Napa Valley through this time? Man, I have so many. You know that sensation when you're on a plane and you're neither where you left from and you're not yet where you're going? That's what this all feels like. And I tend to really enjoy that sensation most, most, I think most likely because there's, there isn't the constant response, the the constant need for your attention that happens every other minute of every other day as a chef and as a parent. 
So I've leaned into this feeling pretty aggressively and have been trying to live a lot more deliberately and be a lot more present and be less reactive and all those things that I know I should do otherwise. And this has forced me to do so. And now what's important is I can just, if I can just hang on to that, that sense. Um, will this drive my career decisions going forward? Absolutely. Um, you know, how could you not realize that the only thing you really, really, really want to be doing is to hang out with your kids. I mean, that's, I was looking at my kids last night and I'm just like, this is, this, what? yes, economic shitstorm is upon us. People are sick and dying. This is a serious global issue. This small, selfish part of me is really happy that I get to be home with my kids every night and cook them three meals a day. And I, no matter how bad things get, that, that, that's a positive and that can't be taken away. I hear you. I'm hearing that from a lot of chefs. I mean, you guys are home now more than you've been your entire careers. Um, and it, it, it's nice to hear that there's gratitude there. Christopher, thank you so much for joining me today from Charter Oak. I um, appreciate you and can't wait to get back out there. Hopefully we'll see you in the fall. All right, all right, ciao. That was Christopher Costo. You can follow him on Instagram at ccosto. Thank you so much for listening. Takeaway Only is produced by Casey Kahn, Rob Corso, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Our logo is by Reynald Philippe at Beeples. Music by John Palmer. Special thanks to Kristen Millar, Antoine Ricardou, Raphael Weil, and to the whole team at Welcome. Check out their important community building work at welcomeconference.org. We're back tomorrow. This is Takeaway Only.